most of our newest initiatives have all been around growing the game of golf. We honestly believe that as young people get involved in this game, that their friends will get involved and their schoolmates will get involved. And so we believe it has a ripple effect. From Tallahassee to the Keys and everywhere in between, this is Education Elevated on the FLCMAA Podcast Network. First of all, I want to echo what Beth said. Uh, Michael, your team has been outstanding. Giovanni, Mick, John, and countless others. Um, it is always a very distinct honor and pleasure to come to Ocean Reef, so thank you again. Speaking of honor, um, I, I'm very honored to be here. I'm actually humbled. I started in Florida uh, some 25 years ago. Got my start in Tampa, Florida, moved to Miami, and spent some time in Palm Beach. So there's a number of my very dear friends in the room, and I won't name every one of them, but folks like Craig Martin and Ken and Kevin and um, Michael and Michael. Um, again, there's a lot of people who have had a great influence on my life, not to mention the two gentlemen from Boca West and specifically the legend J.D. Pietro. So thank you very, very much, gentlemen, for all you've done in my career. Um, I would not be where I was today without um, your support. I can tell you uh, it's amazing how this business works. A lot of it is by luck. I was at Lagorce Country Club. Uh, I was a young general manager at Lagorce at a very early age of uh, 29 years old. Uh, stayed there six years, and one day they came in and said, we're closing the place down. We want you to fire everyone. And uh, I just hired a superintendent and just hired a golf professional. And in hindsight, my father told me when it all happened, he said, this is going to turn out to be one of the best things that ever has happened to you. I immediately, I just signed a contract with him. I immediately found within a week another job at Gulfstream Golf Club, and the rest is history. I moved from Gulfstream to Augusta National. Tell you a quick story about a, a Gulfstream. I was there about a year and a half. I was sitting outside. The club was closed. For those of you who have not been to Gulfstream, beautiful setting sits along the ocean having lunch by myself in the middle of the summer, and the phone rings. And uh, it's a gentleman from Augusta National on the phone, and he said, um, we would like you to come up and interview. And I said, well, I'm very flattered, but I love this membership, and I'm not leaving Palm Beach. I was single. I could not imagine moving from Palm Beach, Florida, to Augusta, Georgia as a single male. <laughs> so I hung up the phone. And about five minutes later, an older gentleman walks in my office. His, his name was Sam Fleming. Sam was a member at both clubs. What I didn't realize is the chairman at that time, Jack Stevens, they did not use a search firm. Copland and Keeblers of the world didn't even exist back then. And so what the membership did, what the chairman did, is he went to five members around the country club and he, around the country, and he said, you're a member here, and you're a member in this region, and you're a member in this part of the country. Bring us a manager. What I didn't know is that I was Sam Fleming's guy. So Sam Fleming walks in my office, and he said, did you just get a phone call? And I said, I did. And he said, was it from Augusta National? I said, it was. And he said, did you tell them no? And I said, I did. And he paused for a second, and he was an old Tennessee banker. And he said, Jim, he said, I always thought you were pretty smart. <laughs> he said, but I'm not real sure why you got in this business if you won't at least go look at that place. I'd never been to Augusta. 
And so he said, I'm going to make a life-changing decision for you. He said, this will be a defining moment in your life. He takes the phone, he redials the gentleman I just talked to, and he says to the gentleman, he said, he changed his mind, he's coming to see you. <laughs> I moved there, lived in the crow's nest for about six months at Augusta National, met my wife, some of you met my son last night, so he definitely impacted my life in a very, very positive way, as have many of you in this room. So as I said, I'm very humbled and honored to be here. What I'm gonna do this morning is try and expose you to some of our, a little bit about our culture, our philosophies, our customs, the way we do business. I'll talk a little bit about our processes. Uh, as I've told people before that have heard me speak, uh, talking to the folks in this room, some of who are, the, in my opinion, some of the best leaders in our industry, about these things is a little analogous to me sitting down and talking to Dustin Johnson about his, his game or talking to Warren Buffett about investment advice. I'm not sure that either audience is gonna get much, but what I'm gonna do this morning is tell you a little bit about how we drive excellence every day because that's the goal. That's all we do is we spend every single day trying to get better. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about, I'm not gonna talk a lot about the financial history of the club, but where we were in 1986 is we literally almost couldn't make payroll. It's hard to believe. We are very, very blessed today. And our founders realized very early in 1930, Bobby Jones was 28 years old. Clifford Roberts was 32 years old. They had very little money and it was the middle of the Great Depression and they made a decision to build a golf course in Augusta, Georgia. So you kind of reflect on that. Middle of the Great Depression, two young guys, gentlemen that had no money, they made a decision to build a golf course in Augusta, Georgia. Their philosophy back then is exactly the same philosophy today. It has nothing to do with the money. It has all to do about quality. All, all we do every single day is look at quality. And what they realized, we are now the last non-commercialized sporting event left in the world. So there's no sporting event left in the world except the Masters where you're not gonna walk out and see a Coke cup, a, a bank banner, a, a company advertisement around a green. They realized in 1930, in the middle of the Great Depression, if you focused on quality over and over and over every day, that was where you're focused, eventually, financially, people would come to you because of that. So what I'm gonna do this morning is try and expose you to some of the, cult, some of the things we do from a cultural standpoint. The other great thing is, I'm a, I'm, that's probably the last time you're gonna hear me talking about money, because the things I'm gonna talk to you about today have really nothing to do with money. Hey, it's really about paying attention to details. The things that I see when I walk in this facility that I don't see when I walk in other facilities is that the people here are paying attention to detail and that's what drives excellence. So I'll tell you a little bit about what we're gonna, we're gonna spend our time on this morning. What I'll try and do is how do you increase your brand by driving excellence? How do you consistently give your members the service and quality they desire? How do you create a culture of excellence? How do you keep your club relevant? On the, and on the tip of your members' tongues, how do you channel innovation and manage competitive environments so the competition is significantly reduced? We do that really well. We really don't care what the latest trends are. And I'm gonna show you some things that we've done at Augusta National that we really don't necessarily care what everyone else is doing. And how do you become, avoid becoming reactionary only chasing others' ideas? 1990, anyone know where that is? I'm going to give a hat to anyone who comes up the right. Dubai. Dubai. What color hat do you want? White. I used to live there. <laughs> In that building? 
1990. Now, why am I going to start this presentation by showing you a picture of Dubai? Let me get my phone right here. So 1990, what is that, uh, 30 years ago? Something like that? Do my math right? That's Dubai today. So it went from that to that. And there was one gentleman, it was his vision to take Dubai from this to this. There was a gentleman by the name of Sheikh Mohammed and he said in the race for excellence, there's no finish line. That's our philosophy at Augusta National. So when my staff comes to me and tells me that we're, we're platinum club of the world or we're top-ranked golf course in the country or even a better story, a couple years ago, a number of years ago, Golf World magazine asked all their readers, they asked their readers to list the top locker room, the top caddy program, the top wine program, the top F&B operation, the top, the top, the top. And there were 12 categories and they asked their readers to rank these facilities at clubs around the country. Augusta National was tops in most of the categories, at least one, two, or three. But we were number one in locker room. So my locker room manager came running to me and he said, Mr. James, Mr. James, you won't believe we're the number one locker room in the country. I want to post that and put it on the wall in locker room. I said, Michael, let's look at the fine print. I said, who voted you number one locker room in the country? It was 50,000 readers from Golf World Magazine. I said, Michael, how many of those 50,000 have ever been in your locker room? So at Augusta National, and I know a lot of you are platinum clubs, and by the way, congratulations. That's a great, great honor. But one of the things you won't see at Augusta National is you won't see any plaques. You won't see anything hanging in a lock lobby. You won't see anything on our letterhead. Because at the end of the day, that's how we live our life. We're never quite good enough. We can always get better. Our chairman, Mr. Roberts, in 1951, this is our guiding philosophy. Everything about Augusta National Golf Club and the Masters had to be the best, and it was not the best. It would have to be improved every year until it was. Every single day I come to work, every single day the staff comes to work, we've got to figure out a way to get better because we're not perfect. As much as the world likes to tell our staff, you're number one at this and you're number one at that, the reality of if I start hanging plaques around the club, they're going to start believing that. And some of it's nonsense. It's like picking the most beautiful woman in the world or the greatest golf course in the world. The reality of it is there's so much sub subjectivity in it that it's almost impossible. So at the end of the day, this is how we live our life. How, what can we do every single day to get better? This is in 1931, middle of the Great Depression, and we had a membership campaign to try and get memberships at Augusta National. Um, for those of you who don't know, we don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> we aren't looking for members. But what Mr. Jones, what Bobby Jones, probably the greatest amateur golfer of all times, wrote on the right-hand side for you in the back of the room, you can't see this, it was his goal, his ambition to help build something that may be recognized one day as the greatest golf course in the world. As in 1931, that's still the philosophy today. So my life is pretty easy. I go to work every day, the employees go to work every day, how do we make this place better? It's that simple. It's not about being number one, it's not about being number two, it's not, it's not about any of those things, it's just simply what can, we, what can we do to make the organization a better place. Mission Statement of Augusta National, I'm not gonna read it all, but it talks about an uncomplicated, private, finest, um, contribution to the game of golf by, give, by producing a world-renowned tournament 
and a commitment towards innovation, preserving the traditions of the game. It also talks at the, at the employee level about integrity, honesty, respect, and loyalty. But one of the things I learned, because I do orientations for every single employee that starts at Augusta National and Club Operations, I do not leave that responsibility to anyone else. So whether it be a busboy, a bartender, a waiter, they see me. I talk to them about these things. And one of the things I realized when I was talking to these folks is I get this glared over look, this glossy look when I talked about our mission statement. Because what I realized, unlike some of you, I don't have the opportunity to go to the Ritz-Carlton or go to Four Seasons or go to Boca West or come to Ocean Reef or go to some of your clubs and steal your employees. So when I hire a waiter or I hire a housekeeper, I'm hiring from Augusta, Georgia. I'm not bringing a housekeeper in from Atlanta. And so when I sit and talk to a housekeeper about the finest, in her mind, the finest hotel, and this is not to say anything bad about any other brand, but the finest hotel in Augusta, Georgia is a nice Marriott. So even if she's had the ability to work there or go in the lobby of that hotel, that's all she can relate to. Most likely, she's never been to a Ritz-Carlton. She's never been to a Four Seasons, and she certainly hasn't been to a number of your clubs. So I, have to, I had to break down our mission statement and say, okay, what is uncomplicated? What is the finest? And we spend a few minutes on each of these, so I talk to them about what the finest means. So they understand what the finest linens mean, or they understand what prime steaks mean, because I can't assume that they're going to walk into our organization and understand this. Most of them have never had a prime steak. Most of them have never slept on, on frette linens. And so it's important they clearly understand. And so I would tell all of you, especially young folks, make sure when you hire people, they clearly understand. It's one thing to put up the mission statement and move on. You've got to make sure they understand it and you revisit it and you revisit it and you revisit it. So we talk about world-renowned, committed, innovation, preserving traditions, committed. We talk about principles of integrity and honesty and respect. And we make sure they clearly understand that if you're going to work at Augusta National, there's a great honor of working at Augusta National. We take incredible care of our people. We have house, we have pension plans and 401k plans that a housekeeper will leave us. I just had a housekeeper retire after 25 years. She will make more in retirement than she may come to work every day because of our pension plan. So she worked hard for us for 20 some years and now she's gonna retire for the next 25 or 30 years and she's gonna make just as much staying at home as she makes working for us. So I'm going to give you two examples of how we go back to our mission statement and go back to our, uh, the philosophy that Mr. Roberts had. How many of you have been to the Masters? Wow, more than I thought. So you probably have seen this. This is our menu board for concessions. So going back to our mission statement, respect, uncomplicated, and loyalty. And I'm going to give you two on two ends of the spectrum. Here's our menu board. This is last year's menu board. A pimento cheese sandwich is $1.50, a bag of chips is $1, and a beer is 3 bucks. So for $5, you can have lunch. Now, people say you must go broke. I'll tell you a little story here. About 15 years ago, my boss called me in the office. He said, well, guess what? We're taking over concessions. I said, well, what? And he said, you're taking over concessions, not we, you. And I said... I'm not that smart of a club guy to start with. Now you're going to give me concessions. One of the things we do at the Masters is, as Beth said, is we do everything. We do all food and beverage. We do all concessions, all sponsorship, all merchandise, and all happens with us. Every other big event would contract that out. We don't because we think we can do it better. We think we're going to care more. 
I knew nothing about concessions. He said, you have one year, you go out and hire a big concession company, you learn from them, they're gonna teach you how to do concessions. At that time, the family that ran concessions had done it for the entire history of the club, since 1934, up until whatever it was, 10 years ago. They passed it down through generations, and there was no more generations to pass it to. I had no idea, and I'll give you one stat, how to produce 28 tons of egg salad and pimento cheese. No concept. So I called in the Levy Group. Some of you folks know Levy. Levy runs, they're one of the biggest in the country. They run stadiums and around the country. I called them in, I had, a, had them consult with me. So I showed them the financials. One of the questions I asked, how you know, what's the, what's the, uh, what do the financials look like? How many sandwiches you sell? So I showed them. And they said, these financials aren't right. I said, what do you mean they're not right? He said, there's no way that you have this kind of revenue serving $1.50 sandwich. And so I'm just telling you, I said, I'm the new guy in the block, but I can tell you the financials are right. I said, so the first tournament, they came and they observed. What we do at the Masters that most people don't do at a concession stand, at most concession stands, you stand at a stadium and you stand in line and then you get up to the moment of truth. Now, my wife, who some of you know and some of you may have met last night, she's a physician. She's one of the smartest ladies I've ever met. But she can stand in line for 20 minutes and look at a menu and look at a menu and look at a menu and look at a menu. And then the moment of truth happens. And the lady says, could I, could I help you? And it's like, I, I can't decide what I want. So I don't take her to Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> so what we have at Augusta National, if you haven't been there, is we have a flow through. So you start and you get in line and you go past the first item and you go past the second item and you go to past the third item and you get to the sandwiches. And you now have already started to fill your hand, hands because they're the thing we do at Augusta National that no one else does. Everything is branded with our logo. The potato chips, the candy, everything is our logo. Why do we do it? Just because we think it's a better product. So you go through the line and you don't have Lay's potato chips, you have our potato chips. And you don't go through the candy line and see a Snickers bar, you have our, our Snickers bar, if you will. I wouldn't tell Snickers that. You have our trail mix. But then you get to the sandwiches that are about halfway down the line and your arms are already starting to get full and you get to the sandwiches and you see $1.50, $1.50 and two bucks. And you say, you know what? People are pushing me to keep moving and they're a buck fifty and they're a dollar fifty and they're two bucks and I'm grabbing one, of, one or two or three. And so the check average at Augusta National for the Masters is exactly the same or very similar to what it was last week at the US Open because we treat people right. And if I can leave you with anything, it's not always about charging the most. I hear this club charges that for a steak. I hear this club charges that for a bottle of wine. It's a lot about respect. And if you show respect to your members and your guests, the finances start to come. Even at those prices, we make very, very good money in concessions. Very good money. And people say, you can't. And I'm going to tell you, you can. Now, do we make a lot of money? No. Tell you another quick story. So Chairman Billy Payne, who was the chairman prior to Mr. Ridley, had been the chairman for a year, and I went into him and I said, Mr. Chairman, I said, the egg salad sandwich is a buck fifty. And it's been a buck fifty for ten years. So that was now twenty some years ago. Uh, ten years ago plus so we hadn't changed the price of the egg salad sandwich in let's call it 15, 20 years. Okay? So I go to him and tell him I want to raise it a quarter. Now we serve a lot of egg salad and pimento cheese sandwiches. And he said, ah, he said, I'm new. I don't want to do it this year. I go back to him the second year. I said, remember that conversation last year? He said, ah, he said, I don't want to start messing with this. I go to him the third year. He said, Jimmy, he said, I don't know how long I'm going to be chairman around here. 
He said, but don't come ask me again. So that sandwich now is about 20 some years has been a buck 50. And I can tell you under this new chairman, I have not broached that subject, but I'm getting, I'm about ready. I've, I'm not too far from retirement. I'm not asking that question. <laughs> so that's one extreme. The other extreme, um, up until about six or seven years ago, we were the only sporting event in the United States, big sporting event, did not have upgraded hospitality. So if you came to the Masters, you were all, everyone was treated the same. You, had a, you either had access to the clubhouse, and the clubhouse is relatively small, or you had the ability to have a pimento cheese sandwich. But because we didn't do it around our perimeter, ticket brokers started to spring up. And they would buy a little old lady's house, they'd knock it down, they'd build lot line to lot line, these three-story facilities, call them homes, and they'd host hospitality in there the week of the tournament, and then shut them down. And we kind of turned our back on it when there were three or four, and then all of a sudden there were 10, and then there were 15. And when it got to be about 15, they got very competitive. And so they started to use our logo, and they started to use our image. And so it was whack-a-mole with our, intern our attorney. We have two in-house attorneys, and they were spending all their time whacking these guys over the head because we have to protect our logo. So if you were in Boca Raton and you wanted to come to the Masters, the four of you wanted to come to the Masters, you would Google Masters. You wouldn't get us, you'd get them. And you'd show up, and you're three blocks away from the club, and they give you a steamship round, and they give you a ticket to the Masters, and they charge you $1,700 a day. Now, not only were you getting that, charged that, and then writing us nasty letters because you thought they were us, but our members were forced to do that. So seven years ago, we launched Berkman's Place. And when the chairman came to me and said, well, we want to launch Berkman's Place, and he said, Jim, I don't care what you do, it must absolutely be world class. I said, okay. I sat down, and some of you know John Johnstone. John Johnstone was my director of club operations up until recently, and John had just started. I said, John, this thing's got to be world class, but John was an unbelievable F&B guy. Maybe next to Giovanni, the best I've ever seen. And John said, well, Jimmy said, these got to be a la carte restaurants. I said, what? I said, they got to be a la carte restaurants. I said, John, this thing's going to have 1,400 seats, and we're going to turn those seats three and four times for lunch. I said, how can I have any, how can, how can we do a la carte? He said, you let me figure it out. So I give him a lot of credit for what we did here. In Berkman's place, right now, it's a 120,000 square foot facility that's open one week out of the year, has five a la carte restaurants in it, 1,600 seats, and last year, the ticket time from the time the food, and these are all a la carte, last, time that, last year when the ticket went into the kitchen until the food came out, it was three minutes and 46 seconds a la carte, serving thousands and thousands and thousands of lunches. You're going to hear me talk a little bit in a minute about process. I had a gentleman, and I will not tell you the name of the company, but I had a gentleman from one of the largest publicly traded restaurant companies in the United States, steakhouse chain, called me two years ago in the middle of the summer. He said, Jim, can I come see you? I said, sure, can I ask what it's regarding? He said, we were at Berkman's place this year with our guests. And he said, my guests happened to be two of my executives with my company. So it was me as a chairman, my president, and my, one of my uh, directors of operations and a friend. He said, we sat down at McKinsey's pub that I'll show you in a second. It's an authentic Scottish pub. And he said, we sat down. And immediately, a young girl by the name of Ashley came and took our order. She got her drinks. And within a couple minutes, our drinks were there. She said, I'll be back in five minutes. And five minutes later, she came and took our order. He said, we, he said the, bit, the whole building was full. He said, now we're going to see how good they are. He said, we started looking at our watch, and four minutes and one second later, our food came. 
He said, we'd finished our lunch, and, and we had a three-course lunch. We had finished our lunch in less than 45 minutes. I called Ashley over the table. I said, Ashley, you've been one of the best servers I've ever seen. How long have you been with the club? She said, four days. And he says, four days? She said, yes, everyone in this building's been with him four days. I have two days to train about 700 people in this building. Most of them are students on how to be able to serve at the highest level and put out food that quickly. So when people tell me, I heard it yesterday, I was at the three o'clock session about clubs that can't get food out of the kitchen, I cannot fathom that. I absolutely can't fathom it. I'm gonna tell you why I think that happens here in a second. And it's not because you don't hire nice people. So this is Berkman's Place. There's a Scottish pub. Each one of the five restaurants has a different theme. This happens to be named after Alistair McKenzie, who is the golf course uh, architect. So it's an authentic Scottish pub. Uh, Cranican, sticky toffee pudding, bangers and mash, uh, fish. Um, we do not uh, serve haggis in here. But you can imagine at lunch and it after, during golf, this place is packed. Berkman's Place is a, one, is a ticket that the, that the members and our friends buy. It's not on the open market. They pay $9,500 for that ticket for a week. You get seven tickets. You can give them to your business clients. You can give them to your family members. You can give them to your friends. And when your friends or family members or business clients get in this building, everything is included in the price of the ticket. There's no cash. So it's about $1,300 a day to come to the Masters, entertain at the very highest level, and the guest never pulls money out of their pocket. So this is the, this is the pub. This is a New Orleans-style restaurant up there. You can see this is an oyster bar. Back there in the back on the left-hand side, there's an oyster bar. So when John and I launched this, I said, John, are we really sure we want to do an oyster bar? I said, how many oysters do you think we're going to have to shuck a day? And he comes back to me and says, oh, I think it's going to be between six and 8,000. I said, six and 8,000? He said, yeah. I said, well, how are we going to shuck six to 8,000 oysters? And I always have to ask stupid questions, and I get a really stupid answer back from John, for those of you who don't know John. He said, I'm going to get fast oyster shuckers. So John and I go to New Orleans, meet with Dickie Brennan. We say, Dickie, who are the three or four fastest oyster shuckers in town? He said, well, the guy over at Acme, the guy here, the guy here, the guy here. We go to these guys. We go to the bar, sit down, talk, start talking. We ask the guys, would you like to come to Augusta the second week of April and shuck oysters? None of the guys had ever been outside of New Orleans. They said, would we like to come to Augusta and shuck oysters? Absolutely. So we brought in... And then it goes back and forth. There's four guys in New Orleans, but it goes back and forth between really two that are the world's fastest. We brought the guy in, brought these guys in, put them at that oyster bar. The Saturday when we were training all the staff before this restaurant opened, I said, there's going to be a gentleman in a green jacket coming up here in a few minutes with me. I said, I want you to mess with him a little bit. Happened to be Billy Payne, who was our chairman. So he walks up. Billy Payne's there. This guy's name is uh, Big Baby. Big Baby looks a little bit like Mike Tyson, has gold teeth, tattoos, biggest forearms in the world. And he says, hello, Mr. Chairman. He said, I'm Big Baby. He said, you like oysters? Chairman says, I do. He puts 12 oysters out on that oyster bar. He said, you got to watch? Chairman says, I do. And he says, go. He shucked a dozen oysters in 46 seconds. Big Baby's first day on the job. We opened that restaurant. He alone shucked 1,700 oysters. I went to him, I said, are you coming back tomorrow? He said, coming back tomorrow? He said, I got to do 1,800. I got to do nine. He said, my goal is to do 2,000 before I leave here on Sunday. He still comes every year. This is Calamity Jane's, um, an upscale burger bar, raw bar, golf shop, fully contained in this building. 
Outside, that's our largest restaurant. It's called The Pavilion. So it's for all the Yankees who've been cooped up all, all winter. They come out there, love sitting outside. One of the things we did with this facility, you'll see there's four putting greens. You can see two of them here. We actually recreated to the exact specifications four greens on the golf course. So your guests come to the event, they get inside Berkman's place, they can get a ball, it has the pin placement for that day. We put our caddies on there and they can read that same putt that Spieth is reading, that Mickelson's reading, that Tiger's reading. So you're gonna hear me talk later in this presentation. If there's a secret sauce at Augusta National, that's it. Why, how are we able to drive excellence every day? because I personally think we care more than people think is wise or necessary. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about that. We risk more than others think is safe, we dream more than others think is practical, and we expect more than others think is possible. I expect my busboy to start there and I expect over 20 years, I do not expect him to stay as a busboy. I expect for him to go through the organization and promote through the organization. I tell him that on day one. You're starting as a busboy, and someday you're going to be running our locker room. Someday you're going to be running our dining room. And our track record of promoting from within is unbelievable because I have to. I do not have the labor pool that some of you have. I'm not going to let somebody go. So we have waiters who, we have busters. I have, two, I have, my, I have a busser that became our locker room manager. He'll retire from Augusta National because I expected more than even he thought was possible. So excellence at the highest level, I'm not going to read all this, but I think this is the point that all of you should go back to your clubs and drive home with your people. Your people are in very, very, very rare company. If you are in the hospitality business, I knew nothing about the club business when I was growing up. I knew that there was an Elks club in my hometown. I knew there was a small country club. And I'll never forget when I, my dad wanted me to be a doctor. And I broke the news to him my junior year. I said, Dad, I can't understand physics. My dad was a doctor. He wanted me to go back to a small little farming community and run his practice. I said, Dad, I can't figure this out. I can't figure out physics. I don't understand chemistry. He said, well, what do you want to be? At that time, I had started working in clubs. I said, I want to be a club manager. And he looked at me and he says, a what? He said, like the Legion Club? I said, no, Dad, I think, I think it'll be a little different than the Legion Club. My dad passed away about four years ago, and I will tell you one of his proudest moments, my proudest moment, and his proudest moment is when he sat on the first tee at Augusta National and got to play with me for the first time. So I think you, you owe it to your employees to go back and let them know how special it is to work in the club industry. I have friends who are in the resort business. I have friends who are in the cruise business. I have friends who are in the hotel business. There is something very, very special about working in the club business. And the relationships you build with one another, the relationships that we built with people in this room, and I don't think we tell our people that enough. I think we let people leave our organizations to take to go to the hotel across the street or the resort down the road, and we don't let them clearly understand how special it is to work in the club business. So you're going to say, how can you bring people in? How can you train them? How do two days? You know, you only have two days to train them because we keep it real simple. So I'm going to tell you a quick story about how we, and, and Michael tells me all the time, I tell a lot of stories, and I think that's one of the ways you get your point across. But let me tell you how you get food out in four minutes in a restaurant where people have never worked for you. Hire about, in that building, hire about um, 300, no, it wouldn't be that number. 
That's a GKW. It's probably about 150 cooks and chefs in that building. Okay? Might be a little bit less than that. So we go to culinary schools. Again, if you're a cook in Augusta, Georgia, the week of the Masters, you're working at the country club, you're working at a hotel, I can't go hire you. You can't go to your employer and say, oh, I really like you for 51 weeks, but I'm going to go work for Augusta National for one week. So I have to go to the culinary schools throughout the southeast and now even up to the northeast and bring in students. So we bring in three bus loads from Louisiana, from the Culinary Institute down there. They've never worked for us before. We have a square on the floor in each of our kitchens. So each of our kitchens, there's eight items on every single one of those menus. So there's eight items, although if you looked at the menu, I know Craig's been there before, the menus are almost overwhelming. We've, it's a little bit of smoke and mirrors. But there's eight lunch items. There's eight stations on the line. There's an expert on their sideline some, from some of your clubs in this country. We bring in chefs from the club, clubs around the country. He's the expert or she's the expert. We put a square on the floor. We say to the young person, you're going to stand in this square all week, and you're going to make this item, this one item, maybe two. When your item comes up on your VDU, you don't worry about anything else going on in this kitchen. You make that item, you put it up. Somebody on the other end is going to pull it out, put it on the tray, and off it goes. We have a par level for every single item behind them in a walk-in box or in a refrigerator or whatever. Downstairs, somebody knows exactly how many items they're going through. So they know how many sticky toffee puddings. She may start with 100, and if she starts to go through her sticky toffee puddings, somebody downstairs knows to bring her more when she gets to the par number. So she's not running to a walk-in box. The only time she or he leaves that square is she has to go to the restroom. She raises her hand, and one of the number twos comes around and works that station. So we keep it very, very simple. We do not have, I, again, in that building, it's all a la carte. I can't train 400 waiters how to use point of sale. I train 30 people how to run point of sale, and then I train the waiter how to fill out the, the sheet properly to slide through the wall so the point of sale operator can fill it in. So it's all process. It's all about keeping it simple. We make sure everyone understands that it's possible. We make it measurable. We expect more other things as possible. We provide constant training and feedback and coaching. Um, Dick Nyman knows this. I hire 100 or so club managers from around the country, or, or I mean, it's not all club managers. There could be chefs. They could be... Um, uh, people that work in housekeeping, we, we hire a lot of people, we bring them into the club, and then it's Dick's responsibility to run his operation. And I tell Dick, your job is to mentor people. When I have 3,500 employees, I can't go around and mentor them all. I can't make sure training. So I put Dick in charge. Dick makes sure his people do what they're supposed to do. Correct? Provide coaching, training, solicit feedback and ideas from the team. You're going to hear me talk about that again uh, later in the presentation. You heard Vicki talk about, and then we recognize and reward performance. We make sure that the people who do a good job for us are taken care of. You'll see a couple notes here. It's only when you exceed member expectations they'll give you credit for providing exceptional service. Our goal is not to meet their expectations. Our goal at Augusta National is to exceed their expectations. And excellence is in the details. Give attention to details and excellence will come. I had a situation. I did this presentation or our variation of this presentation a number of years ago. And I had an executive, and I'm going to call him an executive, um, from another club come up to me after the presentation said, Jim, that was great, but that's pretty simple. He said, you know, I leave all of that detailed stuff to, my, to my, my rest of my employees, my management team. I said, really? Found about seven months later, he's no longer at his club. <laughs> I want to read you something. So this is from Harvard Business Review. 
Carlos Brito is walking the aisles of a vast San Polo uh, supermarket, continually stopping to pick up pieces of trash, a paper cup, a plastic fork, or to pull cartons of beer to the front of the shelves for better visibility. These aren't the kind of menial tasks that most executives would touch. But Brito, CEO of the largest beer company in the world, isn't like most executives. Attention to detail has become a hallmark of Brito's leadership at Anheuser-Busch InBev, a sprawling beer behemoth forged from six mega mergers in 25 years. What I tell people in the industry, they always tell me they don't have time, they're too big, they don't want to get their suit dirty. At the end of the day, they don't need to be in this business. Because you're never going to drive excellence at your club if your employees don't see you doing the same thing you expect them to do. Picking up that piece of trash, moving that chair into the right location, doing whatever we have to do. If you walk past that light bulb and you don't say that light bulb's out to somebody, then the next time that they walk in that space, they'll do exactly the same thing. They'll mirror your actions. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the structure because I think this is important for everyone here to understand. I do not have an unlimited budget in club operations. So we are very, very, very fortunate at Augusta National that as we've moved along in our history, we've gotten a lot of things right. But this is the structure. So there's Augusta National Incorporated. That's what it was called in 1930 when the club started. The leadership under Augusta National Golf Club is there as a chairman. That chairman can stay as long as he wants, can decide when he wants to step down. Billy Payne, who probably had more impact on my life than anyone other than my father, was our chairman for 11 years. Prior to that, it was Jack Stevens, or Hootie Johnson and Jack Stevens. So I've had the distinct honor and pleasure of working now for four different chairmen. Fred Ridley from Tampa, Florida is our new chairman. My guess is that he and I, he'll probably stay longer than I will. But the chairman stays as long as he wants. Underneath the chairman, there's an executive director and five senior directors and 15 directors. There are no there's only two committees at Augusta National. There's a finance committee and there's an executive committee. And they meet a couple times a year. So I'm not sitting in committee meetings. Now, why is this important? Because at the end of the day, those, that senior leadership team, those five senior directors, they have to run their operations. They're expected to run their operations. And while some people say, well, it must be nice having committees, I actually like committees. I actually like getting really, really smart people in the room and getting their input. This is a little bit of a struggle because you have no one, you can't blame it on anyone. If Berkman's place had not worked, I couldn't blame it on the on the Berkman's Place Committee, or the Hospitality Committee, or the House Committee. So some people say, well, it's great not to have a committee. Not always. Be careful what you, what you ask for or wish for. On the left-hand side is the operation that I'm responsible for. So we have a lodging component. We have a food and beverage component. We have one of the largest wine collections in the United States, golf operations, caddy operations, transportation, locker rooms, laundry, flower shop, housekeeping, and maintenance. There are no committees on that side. And that is a standalone P&L. The reason I put this up here is to drive home that point. People are going to say, well, geez, he can do anything he wants because he has a big budget. No, I don't. I have a budget just like you do. Because we are a for-profit Augusta National Golf Club. Augusta National Incorporated is a for-profit entity. We have a private piece of it. The government has allowed us to carve out the private piece, but we're, we're profit. We pay taxes, where most of you probably don't. So... There's a lot of money or some money over on the left-hand side. We like 
most clubs, most medium to large clubs in Florida would be over here on this left-hand side. But when it comes to the resources, the financial resources, they're all over here on the, excuse me, on the left-hand side. All the financial resources are over here on the right-hand side. Because unlike most other events, we do everything. The, the PGA of America, the PGA Tour, the USGA has nothing to do with the conduct of the Masters Tournament. Now, are they there to assist us? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, we do all ticket sales. Domestic media TV, international media and TV, big, big buckets there, 130 countries around, no, it's actually about 140 now, are authorized to show the Masters. So we have people on staff that fly around the world to negotiate television contracts. New media, merchandise, we do our own merchandise. We now have, in some cases, even cut out the middleman with merchandise. So you may not go in our shop anymore and find a, a Bobby Jones shirt. We manufacture our own shirts. We manufacture many of our, of our apparel items. So we've taken the middleman out of it. The gentleman who runs that just came to us. He's been with us about four years. He was the um, number two at Disney. Domestic sponsorship, international sponsorship. There's, there's uh, three big sponsors that are able to affiliate themselves with the Masters without much advertising. You see it when you watch the tournament. That'd be Mercedes-Benz, uh, AT&T, and IBM. And then internationally, we have Rolex, Delta, and UPS. Masters Tournament Foundation, most of the money that is made, or a lot of the money that's made on this right-hand side goes to our foundation. And you're going to hear me talk about it in a second. That's where we give back. We give back to the local community. We give back to the game of golf. Also, the reason that's, that's uh, highlighted there, player services, concession, sponsor hospitality, and Berkman's Place, again, we all support each other. So those are things on the Masters Tournament side that the club operations people are responsible for. Rules and scoring, safety and, and security, and then there's 20-plus committees that oversee the Masters Tournament for one week. So they meet. They might meet once or twice, and then they're kind of disbanded in the summer, and then they'll reconvene in the fall. Grow the game. You heard me talk a little bit about dreaming, about innovation, about new ideas. All of these ideas, these three, some of them you're probably familiar with some, maybe not with others, but all of these ideas did not exist seven years ago. All of these initiatives are all new. So the Asia Pacific Amateur Championship, sitting to me with Chairman Payne a number of years ago, Chairman Payne was a gentleman who brought the Centennial Olympics to Augusta, or to Augusta, to Atlanta, Georgia in 1996 when everyone in the world said that it was going back to Greece. He was sitting in a meeting with him, the senior leadership team, and he said, I have an idea. He said, we do a good job of putting on a tournament. He said, why don't we take this show on the road? Now, we thought he was talking about Atlanta. He said, we're going to put on a tournament in Asia. He said, because less than one half of 1% of the people in Asia have even ever picked up a golf club. He said, we're spending a lot of money with our friends in the USGA and the PGA and the PGA of America to try and move the needle in the United States to grow the game. The reality of it is about 12 to 15 million people are interested in the game of golf in the United States. And we're going to continue to spend a lot of money here to help all those associations and those organizations, but you can only spend so much money to get another percent. So what he realized is if we took it to Asia and we created some heroes in Asia, that we may move, start to move that needle from one half of 1% to 1%. Well, when you start to move the needle in Asia at 1%, and you're talking about billions and billions of people, it's a lot of golfers. So both this event and the Latin America that came about um, 
four years after that, we bring the best Asian players. We fly them to the country. We put them up. We fly their families there. We stay in the finest hotels. They compete. And then whoever wins that event gets a free invitation to the Masters on us. So they compete and play in the Masters. We had some friends from golfers organizations, and I'm not going to tell you which one, when we launched this thing, say to us, it'll be years and years and years before anyone from Asia will make the cut of Masters. The second year, a young man from Japan by the name of Hideki Matsuyama was our champion. No one had heard of Hideki Matsuyama until that point. Hideki was a low amateur, went pro right after that, and the rest is history. I think Hideki's top 15 in the world right now. Same thing with Latin America Amateur Championship a number of years ago, and I put this up here to thank all of you that have been involved in this effort. A number of clubs have opened their doors for qualifying rounds and for regional rounds throughout the country. But again, that's where tens and tens and tens of thousands of young people sign up with the opportunity to make the final 88, to come to Augusta National the Sunday prior to the Masters, put on the same green that the players are gonna be putting on for a drive, chip, and putt. Um, and again, these initiatives, as Chairman Payne said, it was just to create heroes. I'll tell you a story about the Asian amateur. So it's not necessarily to always identify the best golfer. As the chairman said, it's to impact people's lives and create heroes. I'm standing in the Ritz-Carlton, Singapore. This is now eight years ago. As the players are starting to arrive, and some of you have heard this story, and a young man and his father walk into the Ritz-Carlton, Singapore, and they're both crying. And I walk up to him, I say, can I help you? And they said, no, we just need to gather our thoughts. They are said, we are from Bhutan and we live in a tent. They said, this morning was the first time we've ever been on an airplane. And then he says, it shows me how kind Americans are. That was their takeaway. He did not qualify for the weekend. He did not make the cut, but he went back to Bhutan with a lot better things to say about the people from this country. So it's not always to identify the hero, it's to create champions. So when that kid goes back to Bhutan, living in the tent, hitting golf balls out in the field, more kids will pick up a golf club and decide maybe they want to be just like him. That's the goal with these initiatives. We just launched um, this year, we will have the inaugural Augusta National Women's Amateur Championship. Same theme as the others, where we identify the top women players, amateur players from around the world, bring them to Augusta, Georgia, They'll play two days at another course. They will come to Augusta National for Saturday prior. We'll sell tickets. It'll be televised nationally and internationally, and we'll identify the best young female talent in the world um, through, that, through that initiative. But again, I talk about dreaming. That's the kind of organization I work with. I would highly encourage you to go back to your organization and ask your people to dream, because that's how you truly drive excellence. It's not by following the club across the street. It's not saying, well, Kevin's club did this, so it's got to be absolutely the way that works for our club. It may be perfect, not picking on Kevin, but at the end of the day, the way you really, really drive excellence is when your people are free to dream. Our chairman, Payne, used to have us, have us we, he printed a pad of paper like this, gave it to all the senior directors and said, put it in your desk drawer. And across the top, it said, in a perfect world, dot, 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 dot. And his point was, you dream it, if I think it's a good enough idea, we'll figure out how to make it happen. We'll raise the money. We'll get the capital. We'll get the people, whatever it come. And a lot of the great ideas at Augusta National have not come from the senior leadership, have not come from the director group, have not come from the manager group, come from the supervisors. 
come from the people who are doing the jobs day in and day out. So this is not about dreaming at the highest level always. This is about making sure your people underneath you clearly understand that if they dream it and it's a good enough idea, we may take your idea and make it a reality. So I call this the table at Augusta National. My point here is those are all the departments at Augusta National. Most of them you have in your organization, some you may not. You may not have a merchandising department, but you may have something else. You may have a pool. I don't have a pool. I don't have tennis. But the point I make with this when I show our staff this is that we're all sitting at the table. No matter who is responsible for what portion of the revenue, no one is more important than the other one. There's no baby table. So facilities not sitting over here at the baby table or culinary is not over here at the baby table. We are all in this together. And then our goal, our service goal, is to provide the ultimate service to our members, our guests, our patrons, and players, but also, and probably more importantly, to one another. Because one of the things that, that is truly magical about where I work and probably magical about where many of you work is all of these people work incredibly well together. Our attorney who came to us from big-time sports, she's um, one of the smartest people I've ever met. She and I have an unbelievable relationship. She is responsible for her sponsorship, and she's responsible for her television. She relies on me, and I rely on her. And she knows when she calls me and asks me a question, I'm going to give her an honest answer. And then if I tell her I'm going to do something, I go do it. So the key here is that we, make, we have to support one another. Now, you, some of you heard me talk before. I spend most of my time on three things. The people, the process, and the place. That's where I focus most of my attention. That's where I would tell you that most great organizations, that's where they focus their attention. I don't worry too much about food cost. I don't worry too much about beverage cost. I don't worry about nonsense. Why? Because if there's a problem with my food cost, or there's a problem with my beverage cost, or there's a problem with my labor cost, because I don't have good process. It's not because I don't have good people. It's because I've not taken the time to sit down and say, okay, we're gonna do things this way and then this way, and then this way. And people have heard me talk. I'm gonna take it to the lowest level and I'm gonna wrap up this talk about this. I have seven steps for cleaning a toilet. I have 12 steps for cleaning the vanity. Most clubs would not have 12 steps for cleaning a vanity and seven steps for cleaning a toilet. They just wouldn't take the time to put it on. Why is that important? Because at tournament, I have 400 toilets. And I have people that I've, that I've hired on Friday and said, okay, you're gonna clean the toilet. And half of them never even picked up a toilet brush. Here's how you're going to clean a toilet. And we train all of those people that are going to be cleaning toilets how to clean the toilet based upon the seven steps. Do they get them all right? I don't know. But if they only get six right, I still have a pretty clean toilet. But if I leave it up to them to clean the toilet, or I leave it up to them to clean the vanity, they're going to might clean it like they clean their house. And I don't, some of these folks, I don't know how they clean their vanity at home. I don't know how they clean their toilet. So I'm going to talk first about the place. I talk to this, our staff over and over and over again about the little things. Things that, you know, it's one thing to walk in a space and see that the, the walls are painted. It's one thing to walk in a space and see that, that you know, you, the carpet's clean. But the thing that sets great organizations off from everyone else are the little things. Overflowing Asher, Dick Copeland and I talk a lot about this. I do not need to, he does not need to, and most of you do not need to walk in a business, specifically a club or hotel, to see how well it's managed. 
go to the Porta Cashier. Step up to the front of the door of the club where they're receiving every single guest and make some observations. Are there cobwebs in the corner? Are there cigarette butts in the ashern? Is somebody there attentive? Is the door painted? I can't tell you how many clubs I go to. The front door isn't painted. It drives me crazy. Or the light bulb's out. Folks, if you're not taking care of your front door, I don't want to see your restroom. I don't want to see your kitchens. The other thing at Augusta National, there's standards for cleaning an ashern. There's six standards for cleaning an ashern. And one of the standards is there will never, ever, ever be more than two cigarette butts in an ashern. And everyone in the organization knows that. From the guys in nursery, to the waiter, to the bartender, to the cook, to me. So how many cigarette butts do you ever see in Ashern? Probably zero. Because when I walk by a cigarette urn and there's a cigarette butt in it, I stop what I'm doing and take care of that cigarette butt. And so does the waiter, and so does the bartender, and so does the cook. So as quickly as somebody can put a cigarette butt in an Ashern, hopefully somebody's right behind them to take it out. A yellowing leaf on a plant, a light bulb, employer vendor that's not properly dressed, what about trash that's not picked up because it's somebody else's job? It's those little small details that most organizations, they get to about 90% and they can't take it to 100 because they stop paying attention to the smallest minute details. I tell employees to see the club through the eyes of the members. Start from the moment they drive in, walk through their workspace, check out the restrooms, is there soap, how about towels, is it immaculate? Our scoreboards, television towers, and observation stands are maintained. If there's dust on the table, won't the member see it? Are linens and diner impressed? Some of you heard me tell this story. I was told my first week on the job by my boss at that time, I want you to, he said, this is a marathon and not a sprint. He said, don't change anything in the first year. I said, what? He said, I don't want you changing anything in this organization for the first year. I interviewed three times in the first year. I couldn't stand it. He told, it was the best advice anyone's ever given me. When you go into an uh, old line club like Augusta National that is steeped in tradition, there are certain things you look at and say, I don't understand why they do this. Now, it didn't take quite a year, but about nine months in the job after I had the trust of the staff, I walk in the dining room, and it drove me crazy since day one. There's wrinkles in the tablecloths in our formal dining room where we serve dinner. And I have all these macho guys all waiters from Dick smiling because he knows who I'm talking about. And I said, guys, I said, there's a tablecloth's wrinkled. Oh, yeah, we know, Mr. James. That's how it comes from the laundry. <laughs> oh, really? I got my car, went to Walmart, and bought them six portable irons. Pulled them in the next morning and said, I didn't get to the full year. I'm at like nine or ten months. We're going to start ironing tablecloths. And they said, they're looking around for the housekeeping department. I said, no, you're ironing tablecloths. And Scotty knows this, he worked for us. You walk in our dining room, and our waiters now will iron a tablecloth. Because again, if the members, if, if you see a wrinkle in the tablecloth, the members see a wrinkle in the tablecloth. These people fly around, you're going to hear me talking here in a few minutes, they fly, fly around on jet planes. They've got yachts out here. They know quality. You cannot fool wealthy people when it comes to quality. So when they come to your club, should the tablecloths have wrinkles in them? I don't know. You're going to have to decide that. But I would tell you that it doesn't. These guys are stand, standing around, you know, between breaks, jihawing and talking and talking football. And I'm going to say, okay, you can still talk football, just iron. And now it's part of our culture. It's part of the, what they do every single day as they come in and grab their irons. 
Maintain the heart of the house areas you would the front. I don't call them back of the house areas at Augusta National because I think that's derogatory. You, you shouldn't work in the front and the back. I call it the heart of the house. So are the kitchens clean? Are the back of the house, quote, heart of the house areas cleaned? What's your dumpster area look like? Are vendors properly trained? The reason I put that in there, oh my gosh, it drove me crazy. We had a carpet cleaning company there during, prior to the masters. There's cleaning all the carpets on the grounds. I get a call from security and I said, the carpet cleaning guy's having a lunch break at Amen Corner. I said, what, what, what? And I go out to Amen Corner. For those of you who don't know, those are our three iconic holes. Number 12 is the one with the two bridges. And the two carpet cleaning guys are sitting there with their carpet cleaning van. The tea's right there, and they're having lunch. So again, bad training on our part. Go to the owner of the carpet. I said, what are these guys thinking? He said, well, obviously they aren't. But it's not just how your employees act when they come to the club. It's how your vendors act. Are they properly dressed? Do, do you allow them to have jeans on when they walk? You don't allow your members to have jeans, but it's all right for the air conditioning repairman guy to walk to your lobby with jeans? No, it's not. I tell them, if you're going to do business here and repair our air, conditions, air conditioning, clean our carpets, this is how you will dress. Now, people don't like that. I can tell you, companies don't like that, that we tell them you have to dress this way. But at the end of the day, I can't make my, my members do one thing, or cell phones. We don't allow cell phones on the property. And we don't allow a vendor to have a cell phone on the property. Think I'm going to let the carpet cleaning guy stand by the clubhouse and call his boss when I don't let a member talk on a cell phone? And then maintain the setting. I talked about desire to pay attention to every single detail. But at Augusta National, we make it everyone's role. We try and instill the fact that it's every single person's role, whether you work in our administration building, you work in security, if you see a piece of paper blowing across the campus, that is your job to stop your car and pick it up. Now I can tell you, we probably don't score as well as I would like. There's still a lot of people that'll drive past that piece of paper, but it takes constant, constant, constant reinforcement with everyone in your organization. And that's again, when you'll start to drive excellence. Process. I didn't ask the question, but I'll ask the, I'll ask the question now. I didn't ask the question before I start. Of the three things, the people, the sense of place, and the process, which is most important? Who thinks place is most important? How beautiful it is? No one. Who thinks process is most important? Who thinks people is most important? Okay? You're all only half right, the last two groups. I would tell you that the people are only most important once they've been mentored to the process. Otherwise, they're just really nice people. I hear hire for attitude all the time. I could not agree more. At tournament, when we're hiring 3,500 employees, and I don't hire those employees, and I send my management staff out to universities and colleges and job fairs, I said, hire for attitude. I got one week, I got two days training, and I will train them if they have a really good attitude. I can't train them. I don't have enough days to train them if they got a bad attitude. But you have to train them to the process. Because otherwise, if you don't train the process, if you don't mentor properly, then what you have is you just have some really nice people walking around. But light bulbs aren't being changed. Ash urns aren't being cleaned. Toilets aren't being cleaned. You just have a bunch of nice people that are all really nice to each other. But nothing's getting done. So process is the standards, policies, and procedures that are paramount providing outstanding service. So I, ask the, I always ask our staff, and again, new, new employees, what if we didn't have them? What if we didn't have, what would the golf course look like if there are no standards for mowing a bunker, raking a green, excuse me, mowing a green, raking a bunker? What are the risks if we didn't have standardized recipes in our, in our kitchens? Dick's heard me say this. 
the group that I do mentor, that I do meet with every single one of them, is that group of 100 and some, 200 and some, I don't even know the number, but it's some big number of leaders that we bring in from other clubs, other hotels, other resorts to help us manage the masters. And Dick hears me say this. Chefs, I don't care that you have a better clam chowder recipe. You probably do. But your job is not to change our recipe. First of all, we've already prepared 4,000 gallons of clam chowder. But your job is if you think you have a better clam chowder recipe, if you think you have a better burger recipe, if Dick has a better way of serving from the left and picking up from the right, whatever that process is at your club, I am more than welcome to hear it. What I will not allow is anyone to change the process on Sunday or Monday because the wheels will quickly fall off. And so do you all have standardized recipes for everything that's in your kitchen? If you don't, I think you need to go back and ask your chef why you don't. Because if you don't, the reality of it is you're not going to put out consistent quality day in and day out. What would happen in an emergency? When I first got there, there was no emergency call would come in and there was no way to notify um, security. So somebody would have a heart attack, somebody called 911, the ambulance would show up at the front gate and said, I understand somebody's having a heart attack. We have 500 and some acres. Security would say, well, I don't know anything about it. So now everyone is trained on the property, both during the tournament and during the year. You dial 6911, it goes to security, and they call the ambulance. So when the ambulance shows up at one of our 10 gates, they, security, know exactly where that person is that needs medical assistance. What if we allowed each employee to speak on behalf of the club? What our facilities look like if housekeeping or maintenance were given the freedom to maintain each space? What if there are no process in place for a golf shop or merchandise? On and on and on. And the last one, think about this. If we did not have the high standards to do with the club, the masters, and the grow, our Grow the Game initiatives continue to be regarded as the finest in the world. The other thing we do, and I know many of you do this, and our members don't do this, so if you have some of our members, please don't, at your clubs, don't tell them we do this because they don't know this. But we keep an extensive database on every single member. Now, I have a huge advantage that none of you or most of you probably don't have. You are not allowed to just show up at Augusta National. So we have a few local members, not many. We have about 20. They cannot come over for lunch. They can't just come over for dinner. So I have a huge advantage that you don't. Most of our members fly in privately. We pick them up at, our, at the airport. We bring them to the club. But every member at the club has his own profile. So this is just one member's profile. Has the same caddy or waiter every time he's here. Looks for his pajamas to be laid on his bed. Expects a certain kind of wine in his bar. Likes his fishing pole place in his accommodation. Expects fresh squeezed orange juice. Likes, looks for a certain entree every time he has dinner in the bedroom. Only sleeps in a king bed. Wants a certain table by the window in the trophy room. Has three or four green jackets. Relies on housekeeping to get in the right one. Drinks a certain type of scotch. Likes a feather pill and delivered. Expects for us to deliver Wall Street Journal and the New York Times to his room when he wakes up. So when that member comes, he expects those things. Now, he doesn't know how it happens. He doesn't know the magic behind it. But the way it all works is there's a database, and that database is now sent out to the people who are responsible for this. And they report back through that database and say, okay, I've got the scotch, I've got the orange juice. Oh, by the way, uh, one of his green jackets or her green jackets are at the cleaners. That's, again, when you know that you've taken your service to the absolute highest level. We've now transferred that down to our guests. So if we have somebody who stayed with us multiple times and we start to collect data on them, you want to talk about really blowing the member away? 
when their wife comes or their spouse comes or their best friend comes or their brother comes or sister comes and you know what kind of scotch they drink and they sit down in the dining room and the, guy, the waiter doesn't walk up and ask Mrs. Smith what she drinks, he brings her a Cosmopolitan because she knows she loves Cosmopolitans, that's when you know you've taken service to a very, very high level. I thought this was a great stat. Although they're simplistic, process accounts for more than 70% of service delivery systems in most organizations. The fact, the finer the organization to present, the percentages are much higher. That's why Mandarin Orientals, Ritz-Carlton's, that's why those are very good brands because they do a lot of this. You know that. They spend a lot of time. So in the great hotels, they do not, clean, they do not leave, leave cleaning a room up to chance. So the higher level of service you want to provide, the more time it is going to take on your part to make sure that all of these processes are documented. And I tell you, I hate it. Absolutely hated it. Sitting down and trying to write seven steps for cleaning a toilet was like, put me out of my misery. But the good news is today, when I started, I did it started in 1996, 97. Today, there's all kinds of stuff out there on the internet. You can Google cleaning a toilet and somebody's gonna have seven steps, just steal it. Take that good idea and make it yours. Go through your entire organization. This isn't you, but these are the people who work for you. If you've got a housekeeping department, I'd go back and say, okay, give me your standards manual. And if it's that thick, you've got to fix it. If you want to drive excellence, you cannot let your housekeeper, well, I'm just going to have the ladies clean. Ladies just can't clean. Ladies got to clean based upon your standards and your expectations. The point I make there, Jets, world-class hotels and yachts, this is a great, great example as we stand here today at Ocean Reef and you walk outside and you go to the airport and you see a jet sitting there and you see a 130-foot yacht sitting out in the harbor and you see a great, great hospitality organization. I loved it when I started Augusta National. My waiters would say, well, he, he, he doesn't notice that. Oh, really? The guy's worth about uh, $2.4 billion and has three planes and a yacht. I think he notices that. So you may not have people that have that kind of net worth at your club, but you've got really wealthy people at your club. They know quality. So if your staff's trying to say, well, he doesn't care. Well, he probably doesn't care because he just doesn't tell you. He cares. He wants his cosmopol. I mean, I'll give you a quick example. Again, another story. Started there. I walk up to the bar. We, had, we have three bars in operation at night. And so lady orders a Cosmopolitan. She gets a wonderful Cosmopolitan. She's upstairs in our library, in our champion's locker room, having a Cosmopolitan. She goes down to the dining room. She orders another Cosmopolitan. She gets a Cosmopolitan. She calls me on the day. She says, this isn't a Cosmopolitan. She goes, I just had a Cosmopolitan. Outstanding. This isn't a Cosmopolitan. So I go back to the bar, to a bartender that had been there about 25 years. And I said, hey, Terry. I said, uh, this isn't a Cosmopolitan. Oh, he said, oh, yeah. He said, it's my Cosmopolitan. He said, I like to style it up. I said, what? He said, I like to style it up, Mr. James. He said, I don't make my cosmopolitan like most bartenders do. <laughs> what I realized is he, he honestly thought that he was doing the right thing. He thought that he was providing a great service because he was adding his style to that cosmopolitan. I immediately realized, oh my gosh. We've got to have written process and recipes at every bar so everyone makes the Cosmopolitan and the Azalea and all the other drinks that we all serve. They've got to make it the right way. 
And again, so if you don't have those written procedures and processes at your bars, somebody's going to get a cosmopolitan made one way, and somebody's going to get a cosmopolitan made a little differently. So now I'll talk about the people. I'll spend a few more minutes on this, and then I'll, I'll wrap it up. Um, and I could spend all day on people. Um, it was a little bit of a trick question when I asked that question. There is no doubt that people are most important. We could not do what we do without the support of our people. But again, what's also equally as important is you folks and the people who work for you are clearly mentoring the people who come into your organization. And then once they're in your organization, it's mentor and mentor and mentor and mentor and mentor. Training does not stop after the first week. Mentoring does not stop after the first week. It goes on and on and on and on. It's a continuous process. A couple of years ago, in fact, it's now been 10 years ago, somebody worked for Patrick Delosier in the room. Patrick is one, is one of my star clubhouse managers that's now running, uh, went to Colonial after Augusta National and now is a lotion in um, Little Rock, Arkansas. Patrick came up to me and he'd been with me about four months and he said, Mr. James, he said, I, I read my job description. I watched you. He said, I clearly understand all the things that you want me to do. He said, but at the end of the day, what do you really expect from me? What are the characteristics that you really expect from me as an employee? I said, Patrick, that's a great question. I said, give me a couple weeks and then come back to me. I would highly encourage all of you to ask your leaders what they expect from you and potentially what do you think their people, have them go back to their people and ask them. It's not serve from the left and pick up from the right. It's not cutting the stake. What do you expect from me? So I put this list together. I expect integrity, judgment, balanced humility, balanced ego, humility, passion, drive, loyalty, vision, and intelligence. Your list may be longer, your list may be shorter. You may have four items on your list, you may have 12 items on your list. But you notice I said I also expect that both personally and professionally. Some of you had a chance to meet my son or already know my son who has Down syndrome. He was here last night. And even though he's not, his intelligence level is not where ours is, I expect those same things from him. I expect him to be honest with me, to may have good judgment. Now, again, he's different than we are. But I expect these things from my wife. I expect these things from my children. I expect these things from my friends because I'm not hanging out with people that are shysters. Now, there's no certain order there except number one. There's no... How much longer are you? About five minutes. That's it? Yep. Maybe 10. Okay. Okay. Make it Unless I have questions. Make it 10. Okay. Make it 10. So I would tell you that what you should do is go back and come up with your list. And I'm not going to read all these, but I'm going to come up with a few points. Never, ever, 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 ever undervalue integrity. Never. Another quick story because she wants me to go to 10 minutes. So I'll tell you another quick story. I'm at a conference a number of years ago, and I'm getting ready to hire a clubhouse manager. And I'm sitting down with this young man. Had a, he's a Cornell graduate. Came to, was working in a really, really good club. I always ask new hires one question, especially anyone that's going to work for me. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the highest, where are you when it comes to integrity? Kid looks up, looks to the left, looks to the right. He said, well, I think I'm about a 7. I don't know why he didn't say an 8. I don't know why he didn't say a 6, but <laughs> think I'm about a 7. I didn't have to go on with the rest of the interview. You either are or you aren't. Now, I ask our executive chef, who some of you know, Ruben Garcia, who came to us from Nurse Carlson, I asked him the same question. Scale of 1 to 10, where are you? He said, well, Mr. James, and he did not hesitate. He said, probably a 9. 
I said, well, tell me why. And he said, well, he said, I'm going through a divorce. And he said, I haven't really been as honest with my son as I should have. I said, is that it? He said, that's it. I hired him. But somebody can't tell you there are seven or six. They either are or they aren't when it comes to integrity. Judgment, these are people who are, make good decisions, not when I'm there, when I'm not there. I travel around the world doing Asian amateur, Latin America, I'm here. I can't, I can't watch every move they make. They've got to have good judgment. Balanced ego, people who are not overly impressed with themselves. I'll tell you what, and it's changed in this industry, but Jay knows what I'm talking about. Some of the old guys. Man, you used to go to conferences 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and the bar would be packed at these hotels. And everyone was telling you how smart they were. Isn't that right, Jay? <laughs> everyone was telling you how darn smart they were. And I don't gravitate to people that, and again, I hope you take what I'm saying this morning more as passion. I, people who know me, I am as humble as they come. I probably shouldn't have to tell you that. You should probably know that. But at the end of the day, people who have huge egos, I don't think have any place in this business. I don't think they'll be successful because you can't have a servant's heart and serve members if you have a huge ego. So if people, if you can test for it, if you can pick up on it, if people come to the organization, they got a big ego, I don't think they'll be successful in our business. I think it's, it's one thing to be confident, but if people walk around with big old ego with their, with their chest pumped out, I just personally over time have seen that they have not been as successful in this business. Passion, we'll talk about this in a se second, but what I say there, those without passion for what they do or believe find themselves bogged down, trapped, stuck in the mud, going no place, and then soon, because they don't have passion, it's my fault. It's the club's fault. It's their coworkers' fault. Drive, same thing. Looking for people who are driving. I'm not looking for people who are passive or whine about how hard they work. I had a housekeeper at one time. She'd come in. She'd tell me, all oh, the worst world's falling apart. So I went to Home Depot. I got a big wooden W. I painted it red. I put it underneath my desk. Every time she came in, I put that W. I said, no whining. If you see the red, red W on the desk, we're not going to whine. You're coming into me with solutions. I can't stand it when people come to my office and say, well, Mr. James, come to me with a solution. Don't come to me and whine about how hard you're working. Loyalty, I'm not looking for a yes man or woman. Vision, looking for somebody you can see beyond today. Intelligence, it's not IQ. Sometimes it's just read smarts. And these people have a hunger for thirst, for knowledge, for consistently working. One of the great, great things about this association, I heard Michael tell a young manager who this is his first time he's ever been to a club management meeting. I think his name was Brian. This organization offers so much when it comes to education. If you don't take the organization up on the education they provide, you are losing out. I don't think there's a better hospitality organization. I'm looking at some former board members. Um, I've never served on the board, but I'm looking at people who have. One of the great, great contributions we made to this industry is we do things like this. We bring people together that work in very different clubs and we are able to send them through our education. That's key when it comes to the intelligence piece. I'm gonna end it up by talking about what I started with. Um, and this is, I've taken this into a very basic form. This probably, some of these things would apply differently if, they was, if I was talking to a, a whole group of leaders within a room. But I realize I'm talking to some general managers, I'm talking to some food and beverage folks. This is almost even more geared towards the employee. But I tell them when they start at Augusta National, we are going to care for each other, for our members, more than people think is wise or necessary. I'll give you one example about restrooms, because I'm going to end it up with restrooms. I have a passion for restrooms, it sounds like. 
We steam clean our restrooms at Augusta National, professionally steam clean our restrooms at Augusta National during the tournament every single night. We spend tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars to do it. Trucks come in, things are steam cleaned, things are wiped down, they are spotless every single night. I could save tens of thousands of dollars doing it every other night. And most of the people probably wouldn't know. But my philosophy is that the person who comes on Monday and the person who comes on Tuesday deserves to have the same clean restroom. So that's just one example is where we care more than people other people don't. I can tell you there aren't many sporting events that clean, steam clean their restrooms every day. Maybe Disney. But most people don't worry about that. We worry about it because we care about our restrooms. Another thing with our restrooms, ladies, we built restrooms at Augusta National. You will not stand in line. I think it is an absolute travesty when I go to a brand new stadium and they know the ratio of women to men and they make women stand in line in the restroom. Shame, shame, shame on them. Make the men stand in line, but do not make the ladies stand in line. So I know how many ladies come in the tournament. I size the restrooms appropriately. When a lady walks up and the men are standing in line, she's doing, whoo, boys, how's it feel? Which is great. Because ladies, if we're going to care for our ladies, they shouldn't have to stand in line in the restroom. It's just that simple. Now, I'm not saying every single time you come, but I will tell you, those who have been to the tournament, as a, you guys know this, I mean, there's lines for the men. There will be lines for the men. You just can't put men through a restroom that fast. Risk, we risk more than others think is safe. We dream more than others think is practical, and we expect more than others think is possible. So when I say care more than other people think is wise and necessary, I always tell my staff, and we spend a lot of time on developing and strengthening their service heart. If you do not have a service heart, you will not be successful in this business. Greet people with a warm smile. Go above and beyond each and every day. Figure out a way. As I said, our goal is to improve it every day, but it's also the waiter's job, the busboy's job, the bartender's job. How can they make their little world better every single day? Be kind, say hello, acknowledge those that you meet. When I walk down a hall, I will stop and say hello to somebody. I do not want employees walking by me or anyone else in my leadership group, and the leadership group is too important not to say hello to the busboy, and vice versa. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Treat people with dignity. We all have different wants and needs. Make every effort to meet with others and find out you care about them as a person. Work well and play well together. Show gratitude. And when you make a, when you make a mistake, say I'm sorry. Pretty basic, simple stuff. I'll tell you one thing that um, treat people with dignity. We all have different needs and wants. We give away as an organization to the local community about anywhere between five and $10 million away to charity. And that's a big deal for us when we're at a leadership level. And we'll, now we're starting to lend our names to building the cancer center there. We're doing some great things for the community. But what happened, if you step back about five, six, seven years ago, that newspaper, small local newspaper would come out, Augusta National gives away $8 million. And you walk in the housekeeping department, and they all say, oh, that isn't great. I'm having a hard time paying my power bill. And you're giving away $8 million. Why don't you give some of that to me? So again, listening to the people, I said, we got an idea here. Went back to the person who runs HR, and I said, I think we got an idea here. And I don't know if it was my idea, whose idea. It wasn't my idea. It was their idea. I said, we're already going to give away this money. Let's just take some of it and give it to our employees to give away. So now every single employee at Augusta National Golf Club can give $1,000 in their name to their favorite charity. 
So if they like the Humane Society, if they like the arts, if they like the Cancer Center, they, whatever they want to do, and departments can go together and collectively give the money away. So there's a, a very, po very poor part of town in Augusta, Georgia, where they have an after-school theater for disadvantaged folks. And a lot of our folks either live in that neighborhood or familiar with that neighborhood. We gave 20 to $30 million a year to that little theater, after-school theater. So again, everyone has different wants and needs. And if you're going to care about your people, you've got to make sure you clearly understand what those wants and needs are. Be willing to risk more than other things to say. Be willing to speak up and contribute when you have a creative idea. Bring forth innovative ideas. It's okay to challenge conventional thinking. Innovative employees with good judgment and creative ideas should be looked upon as critical to our success. So often in organizations, the busboy does not have a good idea. He's a busboy. The waiter doesn't have a good idea. He's a waiter. If you run your organization that way, you are missing out because most of the good ideas that come forth to me do not come from my leadership. They come from people that are working in their areas, their respective areas, and say, Mr. James, I think we can improve. Whoops. And my last one, if I can remember. See, best laid plans. I don't even know my password. Okay. Talked about care, risk, dream. They must have a passion and purpose in life. Those without passion or dreams in life often find itself, you heard me say this before, get stuck in the mud. They're the architect of their own destiny. Grasp emerging technologies. Don't become so content on not improving yourself, your work environment. Set goals. A dream written down with a date becomes a goal. I ask people all the time, do you have goals? Oh, I have goals. Okay, let me see them. Oh, well, they're at home. They're in my desk drawer. Lou Holtz, who's a member of our club, Lou Holtz says, the only place your goal should be is in your wallet or on your mirror at home, and they better have a date. Because if it's just, I want to I be able to run a marathon. Oh, really? I mean, I'm, I'd like to run a marathon too, but I'm 50-some years old. Unless I say I want to run a marathon by January of 2019, it probably isn't going to happen. And then even if that was my goal, I'm still not sure it's going to happen, by the way. <laughs> and then expect more, and this is the, one of the things I think that is most important. Expect more than others think is possible. Dare to be great. Stretch your limits. Don't accept normal. Be way above normal. Hold yourself and others in your life accountable. Never give up on yourself or those you care for and love. But whatever you achieve or, or others achieve close to you, remain humble. Don't become overly impressed with yourself. Again, as I said, it should be your goal that every busboy you hire becomes a waiter. Every waiter becomes a captain. Every captain becomes a supervisor. And hopefully someday that supervisor becomes a manager. Now, that's a very broad statement. You know that's not going to happen. But I did not know 20-some years ago when I hired a young African-American gentleman that had his pants down about here when I hired him that he would be doing what he's doing at Augusta National today. I expected him. I said, you're going to pull your pants up. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. And over time, he figured it out. And he would tell you, if he was standing here right now, he would tell you it's the greatest thing that ever happened to him because I expected a lot more from him 
that his family expected for him and he expected for himself. The secret of achieving excellence is deep-seated personal commitment that you will never, never, you will never again knowingly do anything that is not excellent. And I'm going to end with my favorite subject, restrooms. <laughs> so what you're looking at, these are ratings from the, night, from the 2016 15 Masters. I thought it was 16. Still the same. Hadn't changed a lot. About 15, 20 years ago, again, my boss called me in the office. This was before the concession conversation. And we were just starting to pull and take surveys of everyone who came to the tournament. So as a tournament guest, a patron, you could walk up to a terminal and you could fill out a survey. And it was random. There's about 100 different categories and you would rank us from food to beauty of the course to, to F and B to playing conditions to parking to greetings to all these things. And it's just random. And we got this survey and there are 100 categories and four things at the end were in that yellow and we don't like average. And three of the four had to do with restrooms. Quality of the restrooms, quality of the staff, quality of the condition of the restroom. My boss calls me off and he said, you're responsible for restrooms. He said, what the heck's going on here? I said, well, wait one minute. I said, the restroom committee is responsible for restrooms. Remember I told you those 20 committees? We had a restroom committee, a committee that was under one of the other committees that was responsible for restrooms. And I said, well, who's on the restroom committee? He said, I don't know, go figure it out. So I figured it out. And it was three gentlemen, wonderful people, a banker, a doctor, and a lawyer. I said, well, first of all, nice guys. I know some of them probably don't have much interest in making sure restrooms are clean. I then went back to the three Ps, the people, the process, and the place. Went to HR, said, where are we getting the people to clean the restrooms? They said, well, hate to say it, usually the last people that, that apply. No one else wants, we hire them. I said, why aren't we hiring custodians? I said, the school system's closed. They love cleaning restrooms, bring them in. Went back, no process for cleaning the toilet, no process for cleaning the vanity. I said, we're gonna take the exact same thing you do with the clubhouse, we're gonna take it out there. And finally I said, I'll take care of the first two, now we've gotta to commit to ourselves to rebuild our restrooms and make them right. Make them nice, not over the top, but make them nice. Make them wide enough. Make sure ladies aren't standing in line. So over a period of about four or five years, we committed the resources, the financial resources, to build new restrooms, and the restrooms at the Augusta National during the tournament are really, really nice. Are they over the top? No, but they're really nice. So for those of you in the back room that can't see this, this is the first sheet of ratings from the 2015 and Masters. So patrons rated us overall enjoyment of the 2015 Masters a 4.88 on a scale of five. Second, overall experience of being here, spectator experience. The third highest thing over everything, the condition of the golf course, the players, the food, the beverage, the security, the third highest thing, 4.82, cleanliness of patron restrooms. But then you keep going. You get on here, 4.78, hygiene of player restrooms. And 4.77, I've never quite figured out that, what that is, restroom spectator experience. I'm not sure what spectator experience means, but obviously we're doing a good job with it. <laughs> so folks, when you go back to your clubs and somebody says this isn't right or that isn't right, food cost is too high, this service isn't good, we can't put the food out, I would highly, highly encourage you to go back to three simple things. Put them all in the category of the people, the process, and the place. Because my gut tells me that all of the issues that you face in your club, all of the service issues, all of the quality issues, all fall into one of those three categories. 
So if I were you, if I were doing your job and you can't get food out of the kitchen, I would go back and I will almost guarantee it's either a people issue or it's a process issue. It's probably not a sense of place issue, although maybe your kitchen's just not big enough. But that's what great leaders do. And I don't spend a lot of time, Dick knows this, having worked with me. I don't spend a lot of time on anything else. I really don't. I spend most of my time on this. How can we improve these three areas every single day? So with that, I'll wrap it up. I, as I said when I started, I'm honored to be here. I will be a better club manager, a better club leader because of the last 24, 48 hours I've spent with you. All of you that I met last night and talked to were so nice to my son. That means the world to me. But I will be better at what I do because of my time here at Ocean Reef. So thank you very, very much. Thanks for listening. This has been Education Elevated on the FLCMA Podcast Network. Download other episodes on a myriad of different topics for anyone in your club or organization, regardless of their job title or description. We'll see you next time.